The title of the message this morning is Day in the Life of a Believer. A Day in the Life of a Believer. Albert Einstein was traveling from Princeton on a train. And when the conductor came down the aisle punching tickets, Einstein reached in his vest pocket. He couldn't find his ticket. So he reached in his trouser pockets. It wasn't there, so he looked in his briefcase. But he still couldn't find his ticket. He looked in the seat next to him, but it wasn't there either. The conductor kindly said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. The conductor then continued on his way punching tickets, and just before he went to the next car, he turned around and saw the great scientist on his hands and knees looking under his seat for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. No problem. You don't need a ticket. Einstein said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. So Einstein had a ticket, but he didn't know where he was going. Brothers and sisters, as believers in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we know where we're going. We know where we're headed. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been saved to the uttermost by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are completely forgiven in him. We have the promise of eternity with the Lord, free of sin and free of struggle. So we have this past forgiveness and we have this future hope. What about in the here and now? How are we as believers, how are we to live in the present time as those who have been saved and as those who know that our future is settled in heaven? We're to live for the one who gave us life. We're to joyfully and willingly obey his word out of a heart that has been captured by his grace, goodness, and glory. It's this life of obedience that we're called to. And life in a fallen world, we know it isn't easy. But God's word tells us it's crucial. And although it will be a struggle, what did we learn last week? Christ is sufficient and everything is found in him. So whatever each day holds for you, don't forget that each day you can stand. And you can stand because Jesus stood in your place, died for your sins, took your punishment, and was raised from the dead and lives forevermore. And because he lives, you also shall live. I love the Spurgeon quote, which goes like this. If God lights the candle, none can blow it out. Press into your relationship with Jesus and keep going. Strive on to fight the good fight of faith. We see that Christ in the gospel doesn't just make a difference in our past and in our future, but it ought to transform us in the present to be more like Christ. And this morning, we're going to answer this question. How do I, as a believer, live out each day? How do I, as a believer, live out each day? How, how we live matters to God. So this message is for everyone here this morning. We know where we're going. Let us learn from Paul, then, how to live in the here and now so as to be pleasing to God. And here's the message summed up for you. 
Christ is God and has no rivals. So walk in him. Christ is God and has no rivals. So walk in him. And we're going to consider three things in a day in the life of a believer. The first is what I call the daily duty, verses 6 and 7. The daily duty, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 6, Paul begins with, therefore. Paul is connecting what he has already mentioned leading up to this verse, and now he's going to continue his instruction by showing the believers what must happen as a result of what he has already said. Paul says that these Colossians have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And the word received here means to receive authoritative teaching, to receive tradition. And keep that word in mind, tradition. You can think of it as the traditions concerning Christ or the teachings of Christ. This is what these believers have received. We see this idea from Paul also in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, where he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You see, this isn't a receiving of Christ, like asking Christ into your heart. That's the kind of language we often hear. This is a recognition, an acknowledgement of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is language of received teaching, hearing, and understanding the truth. Truth about what? That Jesus Christ isn't only Savior, but he's also Lord. You can understand it this way. Jesus can't be Savior if he's not Lord. Jesus cannot be Savior if he's also not Lord. And that implies submission. That implies a recognition that Christ alone has the right to rule and determine how we can best live for him. And the Colossian believers, they were demonstrating this in their lives. We learned last week in chapter 2, verse 5, in the verse before, Paul was commending them for their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. They were doing well against the attacks of the false teachers. What they needed to do was to continue to. Continue to what? The end of verse 6 tells us. Continue to walk in him. And that tells us something very important. Once you receive Christ, it's not over. You're not done. There must be an ongoing relationship. There must be growth that takes place. As you received Christ, keep walking in him. In other words, you don't move on to something else. You received Jesus by grace through faith, and you received him this way, desperately, needily, and as your only hope. So keep walking in him like that. Keep walking in him desperately, needily, as your only hope. It begins by faith and it continues by faith. The NIV translation says, says it this way, continue to live your lives in him. Walking, we know, it refers to the way you live your life. It talks about your daily conduct, your behavior, your entire manner of life. 
your step-by-step, day-by-day, obedient living. And this walk, we see, Paul says, is in him. It's in Christ. Walk in Christ. This means that we need to lead a life that's consistent with our confession and our profession of Christ. Our identity is in Christ, so we ought to live as those who identify with Christ. We don't walk aimlessly. We walk intentionally and purposefully. And our walk, our life, ought to be patterned after his. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked, referring to Christ. So knowing Christ leads to walking. And we saw this idea in chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says that he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge, then what? so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Because of who Christ is, what he has done, and what you have because of him, Paul says, therefore, walk in him. Jesus is the motivation behind our walk. In light of who Jesus is, do this. It's Jesus who motivates our walk, and it's always that way in the life of a believer. So we can look back in our lives to see what Jesus has done and what has Christ done. Just in Colossians alone, we've learned that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Christ has also taken us who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. We don't only look back, we also look forward to what Jesus will do. He will come again and set things right. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven, chapter 1, verse 5. We'll be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him, chapter 1, verse 22. In light of what he has done and in light of what he will do in the present time, in the here and now, walk in him. You've received Christ, so walk in him. This is the first command given in Colossians. And this might surprise you. This is the first command given in Colossians. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't if you feel like it or not. This is non-negotiable and meant to be heeded and meant to be obeyed. And a quick note on God-honoring obedience. In, in our family, we have young kids often in need of, of guidance and teaching and, and obedience. We tell them this. Obedience is obeying right away, all the way, with a happy heart. And we say this so that they know that obedience isn't doing it later. It's not doing it halfway, and it's not doing it begrudgingly. And so, as you can see, there's a lot that's required of us for God-honoring obedience. And this isn't just important for kids to know. How much more for adults to hear this? Remember, Jesus is the motivation behind our walk. In light of him, live for him. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, 
just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Continue to walk in him. As you've received him, keep walking. Receiving leads to walking. So what's involved in this walk? Verse 7 explains how we're to walk. Look at verse 7. Four things will characterize this walk in Christ. First, being rooted. This is the image of a tree. And this is the, root, the word rooted is in the perfect tense, suggesting a, a once-for-all experience of being permanently rooted. We can't be uprooted. Permanently rooted, and this occurred when you were born again, and it has ongoing ramifications. How that truth alone should bring assurance and security to us. Psalm 1 talks about how a blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. This tree is rooted. It has life. It's secure. And because of its firm roots, it doesn't falter and it doesn't wilt. It can withstand wind, rain, and storms. Brothers and sisters, you have been firmly rooted in Christ at salvation. And since that time, Christ is your source of spiritual nourishment, growth, and fruit. In other words, Christ is the root by which you grow. And we ought to live in the deep roots of his rich soil. You've been once for all planted in Jesus Christ. His life flows into yours, and you draw your nourishment from his soil. A commentator said this, Christians are not to be tumbleweeds that have no roots and are blown about by every wind of doctrine, nor are they to be transplants that are repeatedly moved from soil to soil. Once we are rooted by faith in Christ, there's no need to change the soil. The roots draw up the nourishment so that the tree can grow. The roots also give strength and stability. We're rooted in Christ, but as we all know, we don't grow automatically. John, we need to walk in Christ. We need to abide in Christ. John 15:5 reminds us that we need to draw from the life source in order to be nourished, strengthened, and grow. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So may you be led by the Spirit to walk in the Spirit. Secondly, we see being built up in him. This is the image that Paul gives us of a building. This word is in the present tense, telling us that this is a continual process in our lives. We're being built up. We're like a building that's being constructed, and each day we're being further constructed on. And with Christ as our firm foundation, we're put on that foundation, Jesus Christ, and we're being built upon that foundation. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is our firm foundation, our solid rock on which we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. Third, established in the faith, just as you were taught. So as a result of the first two things mentioned, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Christ, you'll be established in the faith, Paul says. This is also an ongoing process of being established. 
established in what? The faith that was taught to them. It's God's word that establishes, that strengthens, that securely settles, that confirms. And it, important to note is that these three verbs, rooted, built up, and established, they're all in the passive voice, which means that it is God's activity. These believers weren't the ones who rooted themselves, built up themselves, or established themselves. It was God who was doing this in them. He's the one who's acting. And that gives us no room to boast or to brag about ourselves. It's God who works on us. And I mentioned this passive voice just a bit ago. That does not mean that we are inactive in our faith. That does not mean that we can just sit back and relax. God's activity in our lives should always lead us to the correct responses. And the right response is to abide in Christ, to take deep root in him, to walk in him. And as we walk, we'll grow in him and become established in our faith. Everything is in him and everything is for nothing. Everything is for nothing unless the Lord produces the growth in us. None of our actions amount to anything apart from him. The fourth and final characteristic is abounding in thanksgiving. This is our response. And this could also be translated overflowing with thanksgiving. This is likewise to be ongoing. We're to always be thankful. However, unlike the other verbs which we've talked about, we're in the passive voice, this one is in the active voice, which means that God's action in our lives should produce overwhelming thanksgiving. And this makes sense, right? When we're firmly rooted in Christ, being built up in him and established in our faith, we'll overflow with gratitude to God. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. When we realize it's the Lord's work that he roots, that he builds, and that he establishes us, then we're thankful. It's like a cycle that you can think of. The blessings that flow, from, flow to us from God return to him in the form of praise and thanksgiving. There's an account told of Matthew Henry, a famous, famous commentator and, and an English minister. A man once stole his wallet, and in reflecting on the incident in his diary, Henry wrote, Let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took all I had, it was not much. Fourth, I'm glad that it was I who was robbed, not I who did the robbing. Matthew Henry knew how to be grateful despite a bad experience. That's how we should react. That should be our response in tough times. Learn how to be grateful and thankful for even the small blessings. Brothers and sisters, you should never be thankless no matter what kind of day you're having. And let me ask you these questions. Does grumbling display thankfulness? Does complaining demonstrate a heart of thanksgiving? Does a critical spirit reveal an abounding of, in thanksgiving? It doesn't. 
But let's not let that hinder us from growing in Christ. Let's not let that take us away from living each day for him. The solution, as always, is to know more of Christ, to know more of the gospel, to press into your relationship with Jesus in such a way that you'll begin to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. And on your worst day, you'll be able to say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. Are you thankful today? If not, let me give you something you can be thankful for. God knows you, yet he saved you. He knows all your faults, yet he's patient with you. He sees all of your wickedness, but he's kind to you. Why would the Lord ever give himself to you and for you? Your future was wrath, but instead you're, in the, you're part of the family of God. Can you be thankful for that? This Thanksgiving will be abounding when you're walking in Christ, rooted, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. A day in the life of a believer begins this way, a daily duty to walk in Christ. And this duty isn't dreadful. It's a delight and a privilege when you consider who you are and what you have when you receive Jesus Christ, the Lord, that it's in him who roots, builds, and establishes you. So when you wake up every morning, your thought should be, this day is yours, Lord. Help me to walk in Christ. Now, what would someone say if they were able to watch you live for a day? What would they conclude about you? Would they see a relationship with Christ that works its way into all that you say, do, and think? Would they see a life of faith, a life of walking as Jesus walked? Would they see a life consistent with Jesus Christ? Walking implies direction and it implies movement. You're no longer going your own way. You're walking as Jesus walked. And the Christian life is one of growth, not stagnation. We're to be moving in the direction of Christ-likeness. Martin Luther said, a Christian is never in a state of completion, but always in a state of, always in a process of becoming. So continue in the Lord, keep walking in Christ. And when you lack confidence, when you stumble, go back to the gospel and preach it to yourself. It's not what you've done, it's what Jesus has done. Return again and again to the gospel. How are you even here right now in church? Why are you sitting here worshiping God? You have a better chance of winning the lottery than saving yourself because the gospel teaches that it's the only way to be saved is Jesus Christ. God has done the unimaginable to bring us to himself. He's offered up his own son. So let nothing stop you from walking in him. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So therefore, may he establish your values, guide your thinking, and direct your conduct. May your walk be consistent, passionate, and intentional. May you not walk in the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but rather walk steadily and fixedly in Christ alone. Your greatest problems have been solved. Your biggest barriers have been removed. And Romans 6 talks about how we were dead to sin, but we were raised to walk 
in newness of life. So let us walk in the newness of life that we've received from Jesus Christ and walk in him. That's the daily duty. As we take deeper root in Christ, we'll be built up, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. That's how we're to walk. But this doesn't mean there won't be dangers for us to look out for, which leads us next to the second heading, daily deception. Daily deception, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So last week, Paul sounded his first alarm in chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Here in verse 8, Paul is going to sound another alarm. This one is going to be specifically addressing false philosophy. This false philosophy was a real danger, and Paul calls believers, look at the beginning of verse 8, to see to it. See to it. This is a command to watch out, to be in constant watchfulness, to be on the lookout, to keep on being aware. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In chapter 16, verse 6 of Matthew, Jesus said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What is he talking about there? He's talking about their teaching. The church needs to be on vigilant guard for false teachers. And by way of reminder, these false teachers, they weren't teaching that you needed to abandon Christ. They were teaching that Christ isn't the exclusive means to salvation. You need more than Christ. You need Christ plus something else. And as, as we'll see here, you need Christ plus philosophy and human tradition. We don't need any teaching that neglects, rejects, or misrepresents Christ, no matter how good it sounds and no matter what it promises. Why? Why don't we need any philosophy? And it's because it's a threat that will draw you away from walking in Christ. It will take you away from your spiritual life source. And Paul says that it will take you captive. The word captive means to take control. It has the idea of carrying someone away as plunder in war, being kidnapped, kidnapped, being dragged off and sold into slavery. And that's a, that's a powerful visual for us. This is spiritual enslavement. And notice it's not by force and it's not by violence. It's by false teaching and ungodly reasoning. That's what false teaching and beliefs do. It drags precious souls away from Jesus Christ. And the false teaching Paul calls philosophy and empty deceit. The NIV says it's hollow and deceptive philosophy. And as something hollow, the philosophy can't fill you except with more emptiness. In contrast to this empty philosophy, chapter 1 verse 19 tells us that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, we're told that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. False teachers offer you emptiness. Christ gives you fullness. Why give attention to, the, to teaching that's devoid of significance, that has no real substance, that leads to nothingness? 
We can also look at chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is truth. This philosophy is empty and deceptive. It has no spiritual value. Jesus Christ delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to his kingdom. Chapter 1, verse 13. This philosophy, on the other hand, seeks to take us captive and make, make us slaves of error. And for us, this is a daily threat, and we need to beware. Philosophy simply means a love of wisdom. It means a love of wisdom. And on its own, it's, it's a neutral term. It's neither negative or positive. But Paul uses it here, not of godly wisdom, but of any belief system or theory that contradicts what God has revealed in his word. I'll say that again. Paul uses it here of any belief system or theory that contradicts what God has revealed in his word. This philosophy, Paul is going to further define for us. One, for one thing, Paul says, it's according to human tradition. It comes from man. It's human in origin. It's man-centered. It's man's attempt to arrive at the truth. It's human speculation rather than divine revelation. And we talked about tradition in verse 6, where we received, believers have received the tradition concerning Christ or the teaching about Christ. So you see there's a contrast that's brought out here. The Colossians have received the tradition about Christ. Why would they want the human tradition of the false teachers? Why lower ourselves to follow man-made doctrines when we have Christ, whose word is truth? In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, Jesus gives a strong rebuke, and he criticizes the scribes and Pharisees very strongly, saying, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So when it's according to human tradition, Jesus says it's false worship. When it's according to human tradition, it's false worship. So we shouldn't hold to or follow the traditions of men. Instead, as Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica in chapter 2, verse 15 of, of 2 Thessalonians, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. In other words, have nothing to do with, keep away from anyone who isn't in accord with the tradition that you were taught concerning Christ. This dangerous philosophy wasn't only empty, wasn't only according to man, but it was also according to the elemental spirits of the world, Paul says next. Some translations will translate this according to the elementary principles of the world. And there's a debate on what this phrase exactly means. And there's two main interpretations that we can take. Paul is going to use this term again in chapter 2, verse 20. So if we take it as elemental spirits of the world, then it's a reference to spiritual beings, specifically demonic spirits, which has validity because Paul speaks of the angelic realm in chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, and also in chapter 2, verses 10, 15, and 18. This would mean then that this philosophy is influenced by demonic forces. And we see this idea taught elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does that mean? Ultimately, every false philosophy is demonically inspired to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And Paul's going to use, in verse 10, Paul's going to say that Christ is head over all rule and authority. So all of those things put together, those are all great arguments for taking it as a reference to spiritual beings. On the other hand, it could also be taken as referring to the elementary principles of the world. That would mean then it's according to the basic principles of the world. It has the idea of going back to the basics, like learning your ABCs as an adult. The false teachers then are presenting philosophies which aren't even adequate. This is also backed up by scripture. Galatians 4.3 says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul has been minimizing and contrasting Christ with philosophy that offers nothing. It's empty, hollow, insignificant, devoid of truth, and it comes from man. Following that train of thought then, this would add that it's also inadequate. It won't lead to any kind of growth and it doesn't have any kind of spiritual value. And there's a case that could be made for both. And either way, however you take it to mean, pay attention to what Paul says next. Here's the main flaw. It's not according to Christ. That's the crucial point to understand about this false philosophy. It doesn't accord with Christ and his teaching. Very simply, it's not Christian and not compatible with Christ, which is why it should be avoided. All Christless teaching is hollow at its core. And also note the little words that this philosophy is described as. This philosophy is of men. It's human. And it's also of the world. It doesn't belong to those in Christ. It belongs to those who live according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Brothers and sisters, take, see to it that no one takes you captive by it. Taking straight from Paul's command to the Colossian believers, beware of this daily deception. There's a story told of Beethoven who, who may have poisoned himself. That's what William Walsh, a scientist from Illinois, suggested after studying strands of hair from the body of, of the famous com- classical composer, Ludwig van Beethoven. Walsh discovered that Beethoven's body had 100 times the normal amount of lead. And he concluded that Beethoven's un- untimely death at the age of 57 was due to lead poisoning. Beethoven's lead poisoning may have been due to the mineral spa he went to for relaxation. So you see, the very thing he thought was bringing him relief was slowly poisoning him to death. And spiritual poison is like that. As people engage in practices and embrace ideas that are spiritually poisonous, they think they're becoming more spiritual, but in reality, they're gradually being poisoned to destruction. False philosophy according to human tradition and not according to Christ is poisonous. Someone said false teaching not only poisons the mind, but also demoralizes the life. It's not only the teaching that's dangerous, but the results of one who is taken captive by it is equally dangerous. It drags you away 
from Christ. It takes you away from your life source. A day in the life of a believer doesn't only involve walking in him, but it also involves guarding against deceptions. So knowing Christ, walking in Christ will keep you on the right path. And there's always going to be the threat of things that seek to take you captive, that seek to deceive you. But with God's truth and walking in Christ, you're armed for battle. We know that all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. And any teaching outside of Scripture that's consistent with Scripture is still truth. But what you need to know is that much of philosophy, other belief systems and theories, is also contrary to Scripture and is dangerous if believed. So for that reason, don't overestimate its value. Don't give it a position that it doesn't hold, and don't take it all as truth. There might be things within each belief system that are in line with Scripture, but only those things are true. Everything else is not true. We need to be captivated by Christ and the gospel, not taken captive through empty and deceptive teaching. We hold to sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That's the belief that Scripture alone is God's truth. Scripture alone is without error. Scripture alone is trustworthy. Scripture alone is authoritative. Scripture alone is where you should look for wisdom and guidance. Scripture alone is sufficient to address your every need and your every problem. Scripture is sufficient because Christ is sufficient. God created you in his image. Can anything or anyone know your soul better than the one who made you? Daily duty, daily deception, now daily dependence, verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul now moves on, and he gives us the reason for why we should see to it that no one takes us captive. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Pay close attention to these, the two words, whole fullness. It's like Paul's using the same uh, two words that have a similar meaning. It may seem like Paul's being redundant, but he's making a strong point here that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and it dwells permanently in Christ. All of the fullness, the sum total of deity resides in Jesus Christ. This is again a goes against the false teachers. The false teachers loved to use this term fullness, but they didn't give it the same meaning that Paul did. They taught that the fullness of deity was, it was distributed among a host of beings that emanated from God. Paul says, no, Christ is the fullness of God, not a part of the fullness. He's not a lesser being emanating from God. He's every bit God. The false teachers also taught that all matter was evil, which includes the body, which then would make it unthinkable that God would ever take on a human body. Paul says no, again to the false teachers. The fullness of deity lives in Christ, it says, in bodily form, which points to Christ's humanity. Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us, lived a perfect and sinless life. So if the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form and was without sin, then the body is not sinful or is not utterly bad or evil. Brothers and sisters, 
all of God is in Christ. Absolutely everything that is in God is in Christ. He's completely God and completely man. And we need to live convinced of this truth. It's an amazing truth about Christ. One of the clearest affirmations of Christ's deity and humanity in, one, in all of Scripture. Jesus is God in the flesh. The fullness of God is at home in Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 1, verse 19. The whole glorious total of what God is, his supreme nature in its infinite entirety, it all rests in, dwells in, and abides in Jesus Christ. And not only that, look at what Paul says next. He says, and you have been filled in him. I like the NASB, which says, and in him you have been made complete. Perfect tense, indicating that the results of our having been filled are eternal. We love this idea of being complete. Imagine doing a puzzle and missing some, some pieces. Imagine receiving a toy and the batteries aren't included. Not so with Christ. We're complete in him. Everything for godly living and godly growth is included. Think about this. And let it settle in your mind and your hearts. All the fullness of God is in Christ. And Christ is in you. And you're complete in him. Brothers and sisters, take this truth and know it for your own life. But also use it to encourage your fellow believers. When someone is going through a rough time, point them to Jesus Christ. Remind them that they're complete in him. When someone starts drifting from the truth, tell them of the sufficiency of Christ. Look no further than him. He's sufficient. The fullness of deity has been united to you. When you became a believer, your life became connected to Jesus Christ. This is union with Christ by faith, and everything that is in him has filled you. John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we have all received. So when it comes to union with Christ, we, we have many metaphors for us in the Bible. One is that of marriage, where two become one flesh, united together. And where Scripture tells us that we're the, the church is the bride of Christ. We're his beloved. And so what is his has also become ours by the grace of God. Scripture also teaches that God has one son, the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So how can we be called sons and daughters if God only has one son? In our salvation, God takes sons and daughters and puts them in his son so that we're all firstborn sons in Jesus. And then God rightly becomes our father. What is his has become ours. What more could we want? What more could we ask for? To quote a, some lyrics from a song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords today. You need to see the world as having everything, but having nothing for you. You need to see the world as having all you could want, but having nothing that you need. 
And if you're here or listening on live stream and not a believer, you can search for happiness. You can try to find satisfaction in the world. You can amass riches. But the truth is, you'll still be incomplete, unfulfilled, and unsatisfied. You've rebelled against your creator. Your sin has separated you from a holy God, and you will be justly punished for your sin if you continue your course of life. However, Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And he did so by living a perfect life, by dying as a substitute for sinners, and he was raised from the dead so that sinners may be forgiven of their sin and given eternal life. So I hold out to you today the good news. Don't continue to live in your sin and reject your maker. You can be complete through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The only way man can be complete is through the Son of God. Will you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone to save you? Paul ends verse 10 by expanding on the fullness found in Christ. Look at verse 10. Who is the head of all rule and authority? Christ is God, and so he's rightly the head. And Jesus is head of, head of what? What does it say? All rule and authority. In verse 9, we learned of all the fullness of God being in Christ. Here in verse 10, we learned of that Christ is head of all rule and authority. Paul's emphasizing not only the greatness and supreme status of Christ, but also the comprehensiveness of his rule and his reign over all things. He's in charge of it all. He's over it all. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Chapter 1, verse 16. Jesus Christ created all things. How could he not be head over all things? Everything is subjected to Christ, including all rule and authority. He's head over all because he's all and in all. Colossians 3.11. And I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, verse 20. Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Christ is far above all rule and authority. He's the treasure house of all wisdom and knowledge. He's the fullness of deity. He's matchless, preeminent, unrivaled. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we share in Christ's power and authority over every rule and authority. That's union with Christ. Jesus has given himself to us and for us. We've received Christ, and in receiving Christ, we're imputed Christ's perfect righteousness. We have all the heavenly resources for maturity provided to us by the all-sufficient Christ, and we've been made complete by the unrivaled Christ. Let that encourage you today. As you abide in Christ, as you walk in him, you're rooted, built up, and established in the faith. With a consistent, intentional walk in him, you won't be taken captive by false teaching. And on top of that, each day, you can depend on Christ because he has no rivals, because he's the fullness of God and you're complete in him. So no matter what happens each day, that doesn't change. You're full and filled up in Christ. 
Where's your allegiance? Where's your loyalty? What are you depending on? Who are you dependent on? Daily depend on Christ. Believe that there's no substitute for Christ. There's nothing better. You have everything you need in Him, and you're full in the full one. Yet we often look for fullness elsewhere in people, in jobs, career, success, comfort, wealth, possessions, in ourselves. Let me ask you this. What, what is the Christian life? The Christian life means that there's nothing you can do to merit the grace of God. It means that nothing you fail to do can discredit you from the grace of God. It means that no sin, no transgression can make you less righteous. It means that no good deed could make you more righteous. It means you can't change Christ and you can't add anything to him or subtract anything from him. The Christian life is to look to him as your all in all and embrace him with all your might and cry out and sing like we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That is the Christian life, dependence, a walk in him. Fullness is not found within yourself. It's not found in jobs, career, success. Fullness is found outside of ourselves. We can't do it. We can't find it. Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form, and you've been filled in him. That's the day in the life of a believer. Daily duty, daily deception, and daily dependence. We've seen that Christ is God and has no rivals. We need to walk as those who have received Christ and are complete in him. Everything we've covered, everything we've covered rests on who Christ is and our union with him. And you can go back and look at our passage. We see this phrase, in him, four times. That's where our gaze and focus needs to be. Everything is found in him. Because of who Christ is, we shouldn't be deceived by empty philosophy, and we should reject all teaching that isn't according to Christ. Paul has shown us clearly how philosophy falls short, yet it takes believers captive and drags them away. False philosophy can be described like broken cisterns that hold no water. However, Christ the fountain of living water, the river of life. And you need to drink of him each and every day. Like the psalmist says, like the deer pants for the water brooks, your soul should pant for God. Each day, devote yourself to Christ and to growing into his likeness. Walk in, walk in him. Beware of deceptive teachings. Know that you aren't on your own. You're not lacking power because you're filled in Christ. And it is a journey and none of us have arrived. We all have lots of room to grow, meaning that we're nowhere near where we need to be, which is why we need to walk in him. We need to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. Brothers and sisters, with God's help and by his grace, you don't walk alone. He never leaves you or, nor forsakes you. He walks through the valley of the shadow of death with you. So know that where you are today isn't where you will be. Growth is rarely comfortable, and knowing ourselves, how foolish we can be, how unstable we are, let us look to Christ, our all in all, who makes us wise and who makes us steady 
and stable. Jesus said, I, we, we, we said it before, apart from me, you can do nothing. Growth only occurs as you walk in him and obey his commandments. It was Spurgeon who said, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. Press on in Jesus Christ, and when you fail and stumble, don't give up. Because Christ doesn't turn his back on you, and he doesn't walk away from you. He stands arms open, ready to forgive you. Run to Christ, confess your sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What a Savior, what a Lord, what a God. Who can compare? No rivals. Brothers and sisters, you've been given heaven's best. You've, been, you've received an indescribable gift when you received Jesus Christ the Lord. Walk in him every day because he's yours and you are his. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we don't always live in such a way that demonstrates you're the Lord of our lives. Forgive us that we don't consistently walk in your word. We ask that we would be motivated afresh to walk in Christ, which we know is a relationship of growing in the knowledge of him so as to be rooted, built up, and established in the faith. We thank you for Christ who is Savior and Lord, who is unadulterated truth, who is the whole fullness of deity, who is the head of all rule and authority. We thank you that we're complete in Christ. Help us, Father, to come humbly to you, contrite in spirit and trembling at your word, to come as disciples, to come as learners, to come as hungry for the pure milk of your word, to come striving to grow in grace from the inside out. Help us to walk by the spirit and receive your word with great eagerness and respond to it in joyful obedience. May you guard our church from all forms of knowledge and teaching that doesn't accord with Christ. Build your church, O God. Amen.